This is The Deadbeat, where we talk all things obituaries, true crime, and the politics of loss. I'm Mary-Kate Gorman. And I'm Solana Quistorf. But really, she enters this discourse space as a member of this community, manipulating the true crime genre to shed a light on all of these very important issues. Hello. Solana. Hello. It's so good to see you. I just ate sour candy and my mouth feels like it's on fire. But delicious. Delicious. Thank you for providing the sour candy. Glad to. That was supposed to be for our excellent producer, Greg Ronco. And when Greg is slow to eat, somebody else has to do it. And that somebody was me. (laughs) You know, we are just a couple of podcasters who take initiative. That's exactly right. I'm going to put that on my resume. Takes initiative. Takes initiative under skills, which we're applying for jobs because this podcasting is going nowhere. (laughs) (laughs) Just kidding. Just kidding. We're having a really great time. Yep. This is episode number three, and I'm really happy to be here with you. This is technically the final episode for the thesis project. Yeah. This is what we proposed for our scholarly endeavors. Mm -hmm. I think it would be a lot of fun to keep this ball rolling. I think so too. And right after this one, we can drop a whole lot more F-bombs. Yeah. Get a whole lot more raunchy. I'm not quoting a smart person ever again. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We're here in episode three. And as you know, if you've listened to all the episodes, which I encourage you to do so, that we have a theme for every episode. So our theme for this one is considering versions of our genres that we think is working. Yeah, we've spent a lot of time unpacking potential problems, I guess. Mm-hmm. I don't think we're interested in right and wrong necessarily, but just in complications and ethical dilemmas mm-hmm. and the thorny nature of what these things are trying to do. And I think so often in academia, there's like... Critique, 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 and then walk away. Exactly. And I think we kind of wanted to avoid that. So we wanted to, to give you a little a little nugget of something that we think is cool and that we admire. Yeah. And um, I think I really want to look squarely at a true crime podcast mm. that I think is doing it right. I'm going to put right in quotes because ethics are tricky. I'm so excited to hear about it. Yeah, me too. So to start our conversation today, I'm going to start with a question. There are two different types of true crime podcasts. One we talked about last week, which is the same story told week after week. Yeah. The second kind of podcast is similar to what we're doing, where it's a different case every single week. Yeah. So I just want to ask you, do you have a preference? Hmm. I don't think so. I think I enjoy, as a listener, I have enjoyed both. Mm. I think there are strengths to both. I will say that sometimes when I listen to a one-timer, if it's something that's really huge and complex, that gets a little bit iffy to me as a listener just because I feel like there's so much that's been left out or unresolved or unexplored Mm -hmm. or things like that. How about you? Yeah, I think that they're different. The quote-unquote infotainment, to borrow Erica Marie Rivers' term, Mm -hmm. who's one of my favorite people, um, thrives more in a single podcast, I think. I think you can get like a complete story in one, whereas a season dedicated to a story allows for more nuance. Mm -hmm. So I just want you to hold this conversation as I continue down to talk about a podcast that tells one story over the course of a long time that's doing it right. So I've been thinking a lot about Sarah Ahman. I've been thinking a lot about Bell Hooks. And in episode one, I talked a little bit about the whiteness of this genre. I think I probably talked about it in episode two because it's, it's what I study, right? So I'm considering how can we possibly allow room at this table for different kinds of voices who aren't white because that's who who dominates true crime now except for our black girls in the podcast that I'm going to talk about today and how do we sort of build this bridge across difference 
for me, a key answer to that question is listening. Listening to these stories, honoring these stories, and things like that. So in Living a Feminist Life, Sarah Ahmed talks a lot about arms and how arms come to represent our willfulness, our willingness to curl our hands into fists, even as white women, and refuse to perpetuate the harm of the system. She says, quote, we have to refuse to support the system that sucks the blood, vitality, and life from the limbs of workers. We need to hear the arms in the call to arms. A call is also a lament, a passionate expression of grief and sorrow. I suggested earlier that willfulness might be not only a protest against violence, but a demand for return. Return of the child, return of her arm. So good, huh? Doesn't it give you goosebumps? <laughs> Literally does. Don't yeah. you get chills down your spine? I'm yeah. sorry. No, no. I, I love this woman. Yeah. And I think that we want to express that because we want people to listen to her and what she says about feminism and also wake up a little bit to white feminism, which I think happens in the podcast where we tell these stories of people, women of color who have been violated, but we don't necessarily take the time to listen. So thinking about listening, I'm thinking about white feminism, Sarah Ahmed, the willfulness to hear the call to arms. And that is why today I am looking at Connie Walker's Missing and Murdered, Who Killed Alberta Williams, mm. which is a podcast about a missing and murdered indigenous woman named Alberta Williams. Let me tell you a little bit about the circumstances that this is coming out of. The Missing and Murdered Indigenous Woman epidemic has gone by different names. It used to say missing and murdered indigenous women and girls and two-spirited people. Then it was just people, and then it was just women again. Because I want to be clear that this term encapsulates violence against indigenous bodies mm -hmm. in a wider way, but specifically against femme-identifying indigenous people. So it's a nuanced topic. It's also nuanced because this phenomenon has been happening throughout the entire colonial settler society, which is what we call living in America. Mary-Kate and I are colonial settlers because we're white women here in this room in Wyoming. And the idea is like this society has been hostile to the people that were here originally, right? And that's evidenced through wars on indigenous people, residential schools, assimilation, all of these things, right? But one circumstance of this society that we live in is the extreme vulnerability of indigenous women. This epidemic gained a more public awareness when Amnesty International released a report from the National Coalition of Our Stolen Sisters in 2004, where they say that missing and murdered indigenous women is a humanitarian crisis. So that's kind of like the white world acknowledging that this is happening. And when was that? I'm sorry. That was in 2004. Okay. Let me backtrack a little bit. So the driving force behind the first international movement began in 2002 when a collaboration between multiple agencies, including Amnesty International and the National Women's Association of Canada, formed the, quote, National Coalition of Our Stolen Sisters. From there, Amnesty la launched a Canadian inquiry to demonstrate the breadth and depth of the violence against Indigenous women. And in October of 2004, Amnesty International launched its completed human rights response to the violence against Indigenous women in Canada called Stolen Sisters. This is when Amnesty called Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women a Humanitarian Crisis in 2004. So this is kind of like setting up a wider public awareness. Now, in a report called Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women from the Urban Indian Health Institute, which we'll list to, link to, we know that... Indigenous women are 10 times more likely than any other American woman to die by violence. And that 95% of cases of missing and murdered Indigenous women are never covered in the news. So those are just some modern statistics to show the realness of this problem. But it didn't start in 2004, right, with Amnesty International. It's been an ongoing problem. What happened is the amnesty report prompted 
the RCMP, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, to form a task force to try to investigate why this epidemic was happening. They specifically looked at what's called the Highway of Tears, and they were looking at nine women that went missing from 1989 to 2006 along the Highway of Tears specifically. Theories say that anywhere from 40 to 80 women have fallen victim oh to violence because of the Highway of Tears. God. Yeah. But the bummer part is, is half of the reason or part of the reason that this task force, which was called Project EPANA, got the funding and the intention and the impetus that it did was because there was a rumor that there was a serial killer. Of course. Yeah, right? Because we're serial killer obsessed in the society. And in that way, I almost wanted to use this material for when the circumstances of the case sort of overtake the tragedy because they did think that there was a serial killer. In reality, a lot of really, really smart indigenous thinkers and thinkers on this issue have located other causes to the particular set of circumstances about the Highway of Tears. For example... Lack of transportation is causing indigenous women to hitchhike on this highway, which is putting them in vulnerable positions, right? So they have located these different reasons why this might happen. Out of Project Epana and a lot of the movements in the early 2010s around the missing and murdered indigenous women epidemic, Connie Walker from the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation who's a Cree woman from Saskatchewan, creates this podcast, Missing and Murdered, Who Killed Alberta Williams. It's an eight-part podcast broken up into different weeks, and it was followed up by a second season called Missing and Murdered, Finding Cleo. The beauty of this podcast is that these women are often grouped because the statistics are horrifying. Yes. Right? The number of women who have fallen victim to violence, the number of women who are not represented in the media the need to understand the errors in our community to stop the violence in a way sort of eradicate the individuals. Yeah. Which when indigenous scholars and thinkers need to do that in order to find solutions, I totally support them. But I also think that it is very important to focus on the individual lives that were lost. So that's exactly what Connie Walker is doing with Missing and Murdered. What she does is she takes Alberta Williams, who is one of the victims, and goes to her community. So the Highway of Tears is Highway 16 in British Columbia, Canada, and it's running from Prince George to Prince Rupert. So Connie goes to this area, interviewing different people who know Alberta, who are friends with Alberta and family with Alberta. And what she does is she really humanizes the story and keeps it from becoming a traditional true crime piece where the host is telling everything and emphasizing that these women are not just a statistic. Alberta Gail Williams was a 24-year-old from Gitanyao, the band, or that's what Canadians call their tribes. She lived with herself after returning from living in Vancouver, and she was taken from Prince Rupert, and the death was, was ruled a homicide in 1989. She was last seen August 26th going to a slumber party by her sister Claudia, and her body was found in September near the highway. I want to talk about some of the really good things that this podcast does. Connie speaks to all of these family members, and she does this in both seasons, Mm -hmm. giving them a lot of airtime to show their grief. One of the most beautiful and heart-wrenching things about this podcast is minutes of crying and sighing and pausing, which I think is like a very effective way to document and show grief. Have you ever listened to a podcast with that kind of effect? No. No. Now I want to. Yeah. In fact, have you ever listened to a podcast where they interviewed somebody that wasn't a host as far as for a true crime? Maybe not where they've interviewed. I've heard them play clips of like previous recordings from people around the victim before yeah but that's all i can think of off the top of my head yeah how about you be on this one uh i think that there was a crime junkie episode where a woman who escaped kidnapping 
was interviewed. Mm. I mean, in the hundreds and hundreds of episodes that you and I have listened to of the popular podcasts and no one is interviewed. But think about cereal. Cereal is the exception. Yeah. Yeah. Love me some cereal. (laughs) (laughs) So I just want to return to this Ahmed quote where she asked us to listen to the laments and expressions of grief. And I think that sometimes we do this thing where we don't give grief the time that it needs, where we use the investigative power of police, we use texts like true crime to come to justice, to solve the problem, to figure out who the murderer was. And to us, that's like ending the stage of grief in a way. And I think this podcast does the opposite, where it sort of opens up the space and asks us to listen to these stories. Another thing that I think is really important about Connie's podcast is that both seasons try to retell another part of history that is silenced. Alberta Williams' story is about Alberta. It's about the other women involved in Project Epana, the missing and murdered indigenous women epidemic, and residential schools. Because Alberta grows up in this family that is dealing with the trauma of residential schools. So in that way, I think that the fact that it's like a series that has a ton of time to cover these topics allows for a discussion of like very important historical moments without flattening the individuality of Alberta Williams. And that's that's a really tricky thing to do. The both and there. Yeah is hard yeah and in the second season connie is tracking down a missing girl called cleo and she's talking about the 60s scoop which was an effort by the canadian government in the 1960s to adopt indigenous children to white families so that they would quote unquote assimilate and so this girl they could never find her and so that's her investigative route and so i think it's a very amazing thing that Connie Walker is doing. And then the last thing that I think I really want to point out about the show is Connie has a Cree woman. There are these moments where she will be interviewing somebody and they'll ask her, are you from the res? And she can have this moment where there's this reflective period for her where she explains that she doesn't fully know the Cree language and she's trying to learn it. And then the interviewee will talk to her about that process. Mm. And so not only is she reclaiming these stories of violence as an indigenous woman in order to advocate for indigenous women, she's also healing some of her own traumas on air. And I think saving the airtime for that is one of the most beautiful things a podcast could do. Just hearing about this, I'm very touched by the project. I'm adding it to my list. Yeah. I have a big list of stuff that I want to get to probably after grad school. (laughs) Yeah, I feel that. And there was one other thing I wanted to do, which is I want to read a land acknowledgement, and I should have led with this. But I want to put a disclaimer out there that I've heard recent talk in indigenous social media that a land acknowledgement sometimes feels like uh, because I'm doing this, I can continue to be a settler colonial person. And so I want to do this because this is a modern movement that a lot of people are undertaking. And if this would make somebody feel like more visible, I'm happy to do it. I also don't want it to feel like I'm checking a box. Patting ourselves on the back and moving on. Yeah, that's not it. Yeah. So we acknowledge that the University of Wyoming, which is where we are recording today, occupies the ancestral and traditional lands of the Cheyenne, Arapaho, Crow, and Shoshone indigenous peoples, along with other native tribes who call the Great Basin and Rocky Mountain region home. We also recognize other tribes that live and lived in the places we call, quote, home. The Apache, Ute, and Comanche tribes from the Denver area and the Arikara, Banak, Blackfeet, Crow, Gros Frenche, Kiowa, Nez Perce, Sheep Eater, Sioux Tribes from Cody, Wyoming. 
We recognize, support, and advocate alongside Indigenous individuals and communities who live there now and with those forcibly removed from their homelands. Mary Kay, do you think that the land acknowledgement sometimes performs in a white savior-y way that the True Crime Podcast might be doing the same thing? I can see how it can, yes. It, it sometimes can feel like an insert that is tossed in at the beginning kind of sometimes as a bit of an afterthought. Mm-hmm. That is sometimes how I think it can feel. And I can see how it sometimes acts almost as like a permission slip. Like once I've read it, I can just continue on and not think about it anymore because I occupy a position that doesn't force me to think about it because I haven't been displaced and I haven't experienced a long history of trauma and violence. Yeah. I do keep thinking about the invisibility of missing and murdered indigenous women. Mm -hmm. And if implementing something like this increases some sort of visibility of indigeneity in a way that needs to be revised very soon, but is maybe suitable for now. Yeah. And I think what you've said about just having the space for it and that it's on their terms, like the family's terms, the people who have suffered, they're writing the rule book to kind of circle back to our first episode. They're writing the formula in a way that I hope feels healing. Yeah. I don't want to prescribe that, but but that feels authentic to their experience in some way. Yeah. There's also... A scholar, Krista Ratcliffe, I mean, his is is often cited and quoted because of her work on rhetorical listening. Mm-hmm. And she kind of flips the word understanding and says it should be instead to stand under. I think we just, yeah. we've got to be committed to doing more of that. That reminds me of Chandra Mahanti, who's one of my new favorite feminists too who talks about reframing the perspective of feminism as if we need to stand at the bottom of a ladder in order to see all of the rungs, which means we need to understand and listen to people at the, quote, bottom of the ladder, which I think is like a very incredible thing that Connie Walker is doing. She begins these podcasts as a very like formalized journalist. Mm-hmm introducing herself as I'm Connie Walker from CBC News and you know the like journalist TV journalist anchor like diction yep and like you know pacing yep totally like that but really she enters this discourse space as a member of this community manipulating the true crime genre to shed a light on all of these very important issues which I think is quite remarkable Yeah, that's where the rubber meets the road. Yeah. You know, and to circle back to Sarah Ahmed in living a feminist life, she has a quote in the introduction that says theory does more the closer it gets to the skin. Yeah, yeah. And that's, I think it's true and I think it's hard, but I mean, we can theorize. Till the cows come home. Yeah, all day long, but... Where the rubber meets the road, that's where I think the change and the transformation takes place. I also want to finish maybe my section by explaining how the first season ends, which, uh, spoiler alert, is where Connie basically singles out a person that she thinks perhaps killed Alberta Williams, or at least leads worth pursuing, which is also an instance where her storytelling and her, you know, feminist theory really does meet the road because due to both underfunding, race politics, shitty people, missing and murdered indigenous women cases are highly underinvestigated and sometimes not even reported at all. According to that same Urban Indian Health Institute reporter that I mentioned earlier, 
in that study, 153 missing and murdered indigenous women didn't even get a police report. And over 20% of these cases go cold. For her to roll up her sleeves, get out there, display her trauma on air and the important stages of grief, and then to help solve this case really with some investigative journalism. She's it for me. I found her. (laughs) That's amazing. Thank you for listening. Of course. Thank you for sharing that. What What an excellent one to end on. Thank you. I love doing this with you, Mary Kate. I love doing this with you. I don't want to see anybody else through this little screen thing on the table. <laughs> Over the top of our microphones. Can we pause and eat a sour snack? I've done so much talking in this space tonight, I cannot wait to hear something actually intelligible from you. Right. I'm very excited about this week. Okay. I'm very excited about our theme. This is such an amazing, powerful project. It's also heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. And I think you said something in episode one that I just want to echo here before I get into this is that it's not our job to speak for anybody or to speak for anybody's experiences or to impose upon them or to foreclose them in any way. But I just want to elevate and talk about something that I think, again, is just very powerful. So this week, I want to tell you about the Black Obituary Project. This project gives me goosebumps. Yeah. And I think I want to elevate these because I think it's so important that we listen to them. This is a podcast about listening today. It is. Amazing. So this project was founded by Jahan Jones in 2016. And the goal of it is to enable Black Americans to write their own obituaries preemptively. So they're all still alive. In case they fall victim to fatal police violence. There are currently over 100 obituaries listed on the project's website, which have been penned by black individuals who are imagining and then writing about the very real possibility of their own death at the hands of law enforcement. We will link to this project in our show notes and please, please, If you hear nothing else, (laughs) this whole hour, this is like my big takeaway. Please go look at this site because it's just phenomenal. And I would just like to read from the about page on the website briefly. It says the Black Obituary Project is a collaborative black undertaking designed to convey the reality of state sanctioned violence and its residual impact. The authors of these pre-written obituaries, all of whom are living at this point in time, serve to evidence the ease with which black people conceive of their own death. They clarify that the so-called talk black parents must have with their children, instructing them on ways to avoid destruction at the hands of law enforcement, is not without psychological consequence. Further, these writers have embarked on a journey toward agency in drafting such agonizingly introspective works. Each has declined the trite and tired obituary template often deployed for those killed by police in favor of their own rich tellings. These are black lives as told by those who experience them in all their glory, tragedy, frustration, triumph. And then there's information. I had to pull. Can... I had to pull this up to read while you were reading. It's amazing. I'm sorry to cut you off. No, it's beautiful, but so so heartbreaking and and painful. Yeah. Every obituary on the site opens by noting the individual's name and their age, 
and then says they were, quote, unarmed when shot and killed in a conflict with local police officers. So that's the scenario that they're imagining when they pen these obituaries. In 2016, in a Q&A with Pat Morrison of the LA Times, Jones explained that this project was a chance for, um, as they talk about on the About page, it's a chance for Black individuals to claim agency for themselves in a space where they're just not often granted narrative control. He told Morrison, quote, so often when African Americans are killed by police, their photos are posted about, but their stories are not shared in a way that is humanizing. This gives black people a chance to share their stories. And I would say that indeed, the obituaries written for this project work to dismantle certain stereotypes that are often perpetuated. So I would like to just read a couple, if that's okay. Yeah. Um, just a very small selection. And again, I, I would read every single one of them yeah. if we could. They're just really beautiful. So these are just a few. The first one is for Dominique Thompson. Dominique Aspen Thompson, 24, was unarmed when shot and killed in conflict with local police officers. Ms. Thompson always wore a bright smile, shared a contagious laugh, and carried great optimism and fervor for helping others. She served a helping life through her career, volunteer activities, and her nonprofit, Never Too Young Incorporated. Dominique Thompson always carried a full schedule of activities, for she was an avid Girl Scout since the second grade, on a dance slash step team, and in many sports. She would always name helping others as her number one hobby and found an interest in people's personalities. Her psychology interest sparked in high school, where she was also part of the track and field, step, and cross-country teams. She stayed active in her community and her school and attended several national conferences exploring the experiences of people of color in predominantly white institutions. This background led to her receiving her Bachelor of Science in Psychology with a minor in Human Relations from High Point University. She had a love for life that no one could deny. Believing each person is put on earth with a positive purpose to fulfill, she fulfilled hers through positively inspiring others. She grew from being just an optimist to an optimistic realist, with a gift for encouraging others to go after their dreams and teaching others how to live abundantly and make the best of all situations. Dominique Thompson was once a woman upon this earth, yet she is no longer. Dominique Thompson is survived by her mother, Melba Gaylard, her father, Clinton Thompson, her sister, Evan Thompson, and Sierra Thompson, and her brother, Cordell Thompson. And each of these also always has the line, um, they were once a person upon this earth, yeah. yet it's no longer. Just the impact of a, a young, successful, cheerful, it sounds like, black woman having to sit down and write as if in the verb tense, the process of writing in this way, that she had died mm -hmm. in this insanely gruesome, exploitative way. Wow. It's just blowing my mind. Anyways, I'll just read one more. This is for Charles Peters. Charles L. Peters Jr., 36, was unarmed when shot and killed by local police officers. Peters, a champion of various art scenes across the South, was regarded as a shining example of passion and work ethic. Throughout his journey, Peters failed several times in his attempt to crack the code of black manhood, a feat complicated by a single mother upbringing and accumulated habits that his lifestyle fostered. However, the morals and principles his mother instilled in him as a child eventually led to a pivotal showdown with the mirror. In an effort to strengthen his foundation as a husband and father, Peters realigned his priorities and entered college at 31 to pursue a career that would allow him to be more attentive to the financial and emotional needs of his family. 
he decided to dedicate his life to the education of young people in underserved communities. One month before he was shot and killed by police officers, he had secured his first teaching position at a school on the west side of Atlanta. He was prepared to embrace the challenges that come with educating an overtly oppressed community. Charles blared rap music from his car, but lowered the volume when he pulled up to his mother's house. He cocked his hats to the side, but removed them when he entered the classroom. He represented hip-hop culture and was a proud black man. He turned that down for nothing and no one. Peters was a son, a husband, a father, an uncle, an artist, an educator, and an activist. Charles Peters was once a man upon this earth, yet he is no longer. He is survived by his wife, Lisa, his mother, Connie Parks, his father, Charles Peters Sr., his brother, Brandon, his sisters, Toria and Tashel, and his art, which he always created with the future in mind. Isn't that so beautifully written? Me trying to turn my listening ears on, as we're asking everybody to do, and hearing these small little examples of the beauty of human life Mm -hmm. and the beauty of these people's lives, like turning your rap music down before you get to your mom's house. And I'm hearing the way that that creates the person in front of us and demonstrates life in a way that I think some of the obituaries don't. And I hear what you're saying. There's a very humanizing quality, especially in this project. And I think the rhetoric here forces society to reckon with first their preconceived notions and assumptions that are societally cyclically reinforced about people of color. And it examines how damaging that is and truly, truly notes how deadly, literally deadly, that can be. And each of these voices here takes control of the power and the beauty and the pain of their own experiences. And they tell stories of contributing as amazing citizens who added greatly to their societies and their communities. And I think these stories are very steeped in the implications of dreams unfulfilled Mm -hmm. and potential dashed out of this world unfairly Mm -hmm. and well, well before its time. And again, it points to how fundamentally flawed the telling of these stories typically is Mm -hmm. and has been historically. That about page talks about resisting the trite and tired obituary templates in favor of a more full telling. And I love that part at the end about the tragedy, the frustration, and the triumph. There's a little audio clip from the BBC that discusses this project that we can link to. It discusses more about how this space opens a pocket for people to share complexity in their stories. And I think what's so stunning is the way in which these subjects refuse to be flattened. There's another interview with Jones that we can link to from the New York Daily News. One thing I really like that he says in there, in that interview, is that often when black people are killed by police, people say they died, which is a very passive way of discussing it. Black people aren't giving their lives away. Their lives are taken. Mm. And I think this circles back to the discussions we've had about Butler's work Mm. and the grievable body and their idea that if these folks aren't considered people to begin with, if the bodies aren't considered bodies, then there's no death and there's no grievability. And this project, I think, stands in the face of that and says these are bodies and these are people and it is death and it's grievable. And typically, as with the subjects of Overlooked, there is like a double slight to victims taking place. 
first these communities encounter violence and then they die. And in the story that so often gets told, that violence is subverted or diminished. And this community and its stories must always already be in conversation with police violence in a way that other folks don't have to never have to even consider and that's what this project uncovers that same interview says he also wanted to keep contributors from making their story too heroic he said quote i wanted to get rid of the idea of the perfect victim in our imperfections we are still do justice and i just think that for a society that seems to preach all about embracing your self-worth and blazing your own trail and forging your own way we sure do like to impose different kinds of worth onto different kinds of bodies and this confronts what happens when your worth is imposed on you and depreciated by societal structures and says Guess what? Self-worth is a luxury Yeah, that some people have and some people don't. Man, this is making me think of some of the brilliant scholars that I've gotten the chance to read over the summer. Um, in particular, a really famous thinker named Hortense Spillers. And she has this very famous article called Mama's Baby, Papa's Maybe, an American Grammar Book. And basically, she refers to the American Grammar Book, which is... The symbolic system, how words and ideas and things function in this country. And she says that because of the ungendering that happened during slavery, the American symbolic system, the grammar book, has revolved around the violence of the black female body and the way in which she's marked and she's constantly having her gender complicated. I think that Spiller's thinking is a clear demonstration of the way that these structures, like the obituary, relies on a history that has flattened these bodies for a very long time Mm -hmm. in a way that this project pushes back against. It says, fuck your obituary. Yeah. This is how we want to be represented in a way that I think is so amazing and powerful. Yeah. And while doing all this really beautiful, stunning, powerful work, also exposes so many issues like the growth seedy underbelly yeah it's doing like the both and thing which again is so so hard and you know we've talked about how praising the dead right is a way of reinforcing what we value in the living Mm -hmm. and this says there can be a very very dark side to that preference and that reinforcement yeah and this kind of moves beyond the shoring up of moral values and ethical behavior. And it's also space for black grief Mm -hmm. in a way that is unmediated because it's this person's own grief about themselves and realization. Mm -hmm. Hmm. I think just in the spirit of this episode, this is a project that I think should be celebrated and elevated But I think it's also an opportunity for me for some very, very serious Mm self-reflection and some serious listening as a person in a position of power and a position of privilege because I never have to confront the possibility of my own death in this way. Yeah. But I also wonder how it, it's not limited but it's how it's pointing out its own limitations, Mm -hmm. this project is. And returning back to our email from Erica Marie Rivers where the deaths of black bodies are sensationalized only in police brutality and serial killers essentially is is what she says. Mm -hmm. And so in a way this project asks for this kind of grief to be deployed to all kinds of black deaths at all different kinds of times. Do you know what I mean by that? It's like this humanizing force that is born out of this horrible epidemic of violence, really. Yeah. But 
almost germinates an idea of how the obituary could look mm-hmm. for all kinds of bodies at all kinds of times. And I just think it raises very, very important questions about the ethics of memory. There's a public memory scholar, Paul Connerton, who wrote an article called Seven Types of Forgetting. And he kind of creates this taxonomy of how forgetting operates in the modern day. And I feel like anytime you have a taxonomy, there are things that fall outside of it. So it's probably not a perfect seven, you know. Yeah. There are things that are overlooked and oversimplified and everything I, like that. I love when somebody says, these are the seven ways that life works. And you're like, okay, you're great. Just seven of them? <laughs> anyways, anyway. Yeah. Paul Connerton, I actually know from reading your writings about him that he's a genius. So, um, In public memory studies, Paul Connerton is a white dude theorist. And white dude theorists aren't really our jam mm-hmm. on this podcast. Agreed. And I fully acknowledge that. And I don't want to impose his voice on this project. I'm more interested in offering up the information mm-hmm. that he presents as just a potentially extra area of enrichment, if that makes any sense. But he wrote a, an article on the seven types of forgetting. And this is something I've come back to over and over and over again, but breaks it down into how forgetting is functioning in the modern day. And the first type of forgetting that he identifies is what he calls repressive erasure, which is an attempt to essentially totally obliterate certain people, ideas, Hmm. things, to edit certain things, certain ideas, and people out of the collective memory altogether. And then his last type of forgetting that he identifies is called forgetting as humiliated silence. And forgetting in this category is classified by Connerton as our shared and massive silence about certain histories and memories that contribute to a feeling of collective shame. To quote him directly, it is manifest in a widespread pattern of behavior in civil society, and it is covert, unmarked, and unacknowledged. So these are the memories that we repress because they evoke embarrassment or guilt. Connerton also states, quote, we cannot, of course, infer the fact of forgetting from the fact of silence. Nevertheless, some acts of silence may be an attempt to bury things beyond expression and the reach of memory. And what I think is so magical is that the Black Obituary Projects resists both of these. Yeah. These stories refuse to be foreclosed or erased, Mm -hmm. and they resist white society's feeling of humiliated silence Mm -hmm. that can impose upon these conversations about racialized police violence. That speaks to just how powerful and impactful it is. And again, I just cannot encourage you enough to go check this out yeah, because it's so beautiful. And what you miss when we're chatting here on this podcast is the visual elements yeah. because there are these stunning photos of lively human beings, gorgeous people, gorgeous photos. There's like an artistry to this platform that I can't convey here. Thank you for sharing this with me. Of course. Yeah, thank you for listening and just want to celebrate this Really, really phenomenal project. And I guess I'll just kind of wrap up by saying that my big question that I have not answered is why do these projects, such as the Black Obituary Project or Overlooked, for instance, or Mobituaries, for God's sakes. Like, this is another example. (laughs) Mo, Mo Rocca, the journalist has his own podcast and based on the podcast wrote a book where he 
does these like super detailed, extensively researched obituaries for people and places and things. He's got mm-hmm. one in here for the station wagon. I mean, this is like a more lighthearted yeah. avenue, I suppose. But my point is there are these projects out there that are riffing on the obituary, challenging the obituary, doing something different with the obituary. Why does the work, though, always have to be siloed somewhere else? Mm. Yeah. I think it's important that it has its own space. I'm not suggesting that it doesn't deserve its own room to breathe. But, like, Mo had to come up with an entirely... Mo, I'd say as if we're on a first name Mo basis. Rock. Yeah, Mo yeah. Rock <laughs> has to come up... He has to fundamentally rename the genre. Yeah, in order to. In order to do something different with it. I think my hope is that we take a moment to think about what these documents really mean, what they really say, what do we really value, and maybe how do we take some of the power of an overlooked story or a black obituary project story and infuse that into just our regular practice. Hmm. We need to hire Mary-Kate to write all the obituaries, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Or hire these people, right? They're showing their own thinking about death and grieving here in a way that I think is beneficial. Wow. Mary-Kate, as always, amazing. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you. I'm really excited about this episode. Me too. I can't believe so many similar themes for us. I know. This has been a lot of fun. Yeah, I agree. Really moving and fulfilling. I agree. So, like Connie Walker and Jahan Jones, be a blessing and not a curse. Thank you, everyone. This is the latest from the Deadbeat. That is Mary-Kate Gorman. And that is Solana Quistorf. And we want to thank you for listening. If you like what you heard here, tell a friend. And then definitely check out our website, thedeadbeatpodcast.com, where we will have links to research, cool extra content, and all the material referenced in the episode. And we'd love to hear from you. Send your comments, questions, feedback, and ideas for future episodes to comments at deadbeatpodcast.com. As always, a huge thank you to our producer, Greg Ronco, without whom this project would not be possible. Thank you to the English department at the University of Wyoming, specifically our thesis and reading exam committees for supporting us in our scholarly endeavors, no matter how odd they may be.